I don't know how I started in higher education, but I do know it was a learning curve, making U-turns, wrong turns, going around in circles and hitting stop signs, until I started asking questions, asking faculty, scholars, even myself looking for answers. So now they call me the... The Navigationalist. <laughs> All right, yes, let's, let's do this. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. We have a great special show for you today. I am Jimmy Cheffin, the host of The Navigationalist. On this episode, we will discuss how we traded allies for an accomplice and an accomplice for a co-conspirator and how in these times it's even more important for you to stand up. And if someone at your workplace is calling you angry or hostile, that could mean you are on the right track. Today, we have two special guests, friends of mine, Dr. Michael Benitez, author, VP at the Office of Diversity and Inclusion at Metropolitan State of University of Denver, and my colleague, Dr. Alex Arantafi, author, therapist, and host of podcast, Gender Stories, and my co-host, Dr. Carolina, Dr. 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 Carolina Bailey. How are you? How are you doing? <laughs> um, I'm great, thank you. I'm, I'm really happy to be here. Great, awesome. Wow, so we have a lot to talk about. And before I get to it, I want to remind our podcast audience, if you want to submit a question for our show, please visit our website, greenbookforhire.com. Awesome, let's get to it. And Dr. Bailey from the cafe will read the first question. Hello. My name is Michelle. I just started working at a rural college with few non-white faculty. My friends told me that every minority faculty needs an ally. What is she talking about? What if I have no allies? How do I find allies? I love these questions and I'm beginning to hear them more and more. And also this exploration of terms such as the ally, the accomplice, as Bettina Love said, the co-conspirators, you must know our language. You see, in many narratives, underrepresented faculty are the only ones in their unit, their department, that is real life. So it is important to rely on allies, right? Dr. Benitez, please. Absolutely. You know, I, I think for me, you know, we just finished the conversation uh, last Friday, we, we held our, our, our first of a series of summer dialogues on how to talk about race and really splitting that up, setting a foundation, how to talk about race with family members, with uh, workers, peers and, you know, co-employees, uh, with strangers, you know, with children. And, and we really started to use the term here, white cultural activists, as a way of, 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 of bringing in with more intentionality and with a sense of, of, of proactivity. Okay. Uh, uh, of what many people refer to as a white ally, or in today's case, as you mentioned, co-conspirator or uh, or accomplice, and uh, not you know you know it's, it's an interesting thing because I think a lot of places, yeah, they don't have a lot of faculty of color, and for those places that do have uh, more than normal amount of faculty of color um, and minoritized faculty, they're they're very kind of diced up. You have one there, one there. There's not really this critical mass the way that it needs to be. And so do you need, you know, uh, an ally in, in, the, in this case? 
um, or a, a white cultural activist? Absolutely, but not not necessarily. Meaning that you know, I'll take a white uh, cultural activist uh, when they're down to throw down, when they're down to understand how to listen and how to follow instruction and how to really stand on the shoulders of, in this case, uh, black people and, and other you know people of color. Uh, but I don't necessarily need one to be okay. I don't necessarily need one uh, to, to, to get through. <laughs> yes, you're right. You know, and often in my career experience, I have I've been disappointed in allies, especially when it comes to being an advocate. Uh, ally is not mentorship, and and that's why I'm so glad that we have this question on today's episode because an ally does more than provide sympathy. They provide work towards equity and inclusion. So I understand the evolution of the term, the accountability aspect, the cultural aspect, but dealing with allies can sometimes be counterproductive, right? Uh, that's so important mm -hmm. because so many times uh, in, in, in the state of white liberalism, we also find that a lot of, uh, you know, white folk who, who mean very well, who are very nice, sometimes are counterproductive. Yeah. They enjoy the mm -hmm. conversation. They want to talk, but they don't bear the brunt of the violence uh, when a lot of them want to talk very nicely. And the reality is this is angering and we should be able to speak with anger and emotion and a sense of, look, uh, this is my life and this is our lives and this is our friends' lives. Uh, we don't have the privilege to, not, to, 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 to think about go back home and then this stays out in the streets or outside the door. So, uh, you know, I appreciate the allyship and, and I always will, but, but I always push back a little bit for folks who are not willing to, they themselves, uh, put their lives at risk in the same way that POC are. Thank you. Dr. Alexander Toffee, please. I really appreciate that you made that distinction between white liberal and white cultural activists. And then, you know, by an accomplice, those are all different things, right? And I so agree that it's not what's needed necessarily by minoritized faculties, the ally, but it's that piece of who can I, at least for me as a minority faculty, when I was used to be a faculty, I left academia, was who can I count on? And also, not just in words, but in actions. And who lives where? I know it sounds odd, but and maybe it's less applicable in a rural area in this case. But one of the things that I found when I was at the university here is a lot of faculties yeah. lived in the suburbs. Very few of us actually lived uh, in the communities that we served. And so who is part of the community and who's not, right? Yeah. For me, it's not just like, who's my neighbor? Who's going to have skin in the game? You know, which is the whole idea of accomplice. You're going to have skin in the game and you're going to potentially put your career at risk, you know, to support another colleague um, and not just tokenize, not just exploit, um, you know, the, the faculty of color or the minority faculty for their knowledge and their expertise and their lived experience. And that, that happens far too often in my experience in academia. You know, the minority faculties are like, you know, uh, wheeled out, you know, and then wheeled back in and uh, don't, you know, not don't be too loud, don't be too angry, don't be too hostile, you know, to whatever policy is going on. And so for me, the the real accomplice, the real ally is the one who is going to be inconvenient to the institution. <laughs> yes, Alex, I mean, like, don't blow things out of proportion, always be civil. Um, you know, words that pop in my head as I 
listen to you are like uh, allies of convenience. The ally does not start or stop during moments of convenience or inconvenience. And then I wonder, are ally programs missing the mark? Yeah. And, and you know, like you were mentioning about allies and mentors, and I think that sometimes even institutional um, um, education, um, educational institutions, I'm sorry, um, they try like to create this program that is like mentoring and allies, but then all of a sudden it just becomes to be just like, oh, we are going just to teach you and help you how to navigate the system versus actually help you to be successful in the system. You know, and actually give you resources and tools and good advice. It's just like, no, the, well, you just have to follow, the, take this class, this class, and you have to do this, and I'm your mentor. It's like, it's not, I, I think that is, is great as a start, but it, there has to be something more, like really someone that will have your back when needed, and still I don't see that, unfortunately. Um, I need more. I need to know that we are on the same page. A little bit more than simply wearing a t-shirt saying I am an ally or a pen that says I am an ally. And I'll add just one more thing that sometimes what I've noticed is also that um, people who call themselves allies are comfortable with minority faculty being um, not in a position of power. So being more right, clear right. to them. And so for me, you know, what is the expression? The proof is in the pudding is when a true accomplice, a true ally, a true white cultural activist is the one who's comfortable with BIPOC folks and trans and queer folks in leadership, in position of power, not always in positions below them, not always as mentees or junior faculty. Yeah, that's that's a great point, especially the the, the negotiating and navigating, you know, because you know, we need to teach our students, and I do this a lot, and I'm very guilty of that in saying, look, these are not systems, unfortunately, that were created for minoritized faculty. Let's keep it very real. These are systems grounded in white supremacist epistemy. And white supremacist epistemy doesn't mean the white supremacists we see out there overtly. It's a condition of knowledge construction that informs the way institutions are built that don't account for black, brown, queer, on and on other minoritized bodies. And so the navigation and negotiation is important for the success. But yes, I, I am looking for that ally, that accomplice, that 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 white cultural activist Definitely. who's not just going to talk in the group and help strategize or figure out how we're going to release a statement. I am looking for that person who's going to call it all in and call it all out and, and be all in back to the skin in the game and put their own selves at some level uh, with the, at the same risk. That, that most POC do so in those uh, higher educational environments, indeed. Awesome. Great conversation. Great knowledge. And now we're off to our second podcast question. Dr. Bailey, please. Hello, my name is Lisa and I am a lesbian, but I am not vocal about it. But lately, people around me who do not know I am lesbian say derogatory things about students who are in the LGBTQ groups. How to combat such microaggressions against any underrepresented student in my classroom? I, I can get started. Um, I mean, first of all, I was like, those sounds like microaggressions rather than microaggression, I would say. Those are, you know, saying derogatory things is, is uh, definitely a microaggression in my book. But um, that's an interesting one, right? Because 
Um, I think that for some LGBTQ folks who can, you know, can pass or maybe are more into what, you know, Lisa Dugan called homonormativity. So, you know, I'm just like you. It's just who I love. I still have the, you know, the picket fence and the 2.5 kids and I live in the suburb just like you. And there's no difference between us. Um, it can be hard to really um, address those kind of situations on a campus, right? Because in some ways, if your goal is to just be like everybody else and not make waves and just kind of pass unnoticed, that's very different that, first of all, somebody who doesn't have the privilege to do that. Um, and second of all, you might even find yourself thinking that is too, you know, radical or hostile to say anything. And I think that idea that it might be too radical or hostile really does come from the white supremacy epistemy that you mentioned before, you know, and, and how deeply rooted this idea of, um, you know, being nice, saying things in the right way, never assuming that anybody has ill intent, you know, all of those kind of things that I think get drilled into um, into folks who are white specifically, um, and I think are drilled into our institution, right? So how do we break silence? What would you say to an underrepresented faculty who's thinking about breaking these silence, the many Lisas who won't speak out? And so what I would say is, what are you prepared to risk? You know, and uh, what are you prepared to risk? What's your safety net? But and also, what are your intersections? Right? We all, we only know that um, I'm making assumptions from the scenario. When people don't mention their racialized identity, they're usually white in the U.S. <laughs> That's my experience, right? When there's no qualifiers. So, what are you prepared to risk? And also, what are you so afraid of? Sometimes people are really scared, but actually don't realize they have a lot of privilege. And also, what age is this person? You know, I know some older folks who um, are still so traumatized by the level of discrimination experienced by trans and queer folks that might put up with a work environment that's hostile just because they think they have no alternatives, right? I heard older colleagues in the past say, well, where else would have me? Where else could I be myself? Where else could I dress the way I dress? Where, where else could I really be yeah. accepted and put up with some really oppressive work environments because they think there's no alternative? So I would say that there are always alternatives. <laughs> we don't have to put up with like terribly hostile environments. And and I think there is this ingrained fear for a lot of trans and queer folks that, you know, we are unlovable. Nobody will love us. We're not skilled and qualified. And if people find out about our gender and or sexuality, um, then we'll be shunned by everybody. And I think that I are, um, you know, higher education institutions really exploit those things really kind of pile on and make people feel like they can't speak up. I don't know if I'm making sense, so I'll pause there. Uh, you, you, you're making oh, absolute you're making sense, and I so appreciate your, your, your commentary uh, on that, especially around the risk. Uh, you know, I, I, I've been in higher ref for a while, and, uh, you know, Jimmy, you've, you've gotten to, you know, we've met and we've had an opportunity to, to build and take some bread. Um, there's a very particular mm -hmm. conviction that goes into this work, race work, justice work, trans work, you know, the intersectional work that a lot of people really are still incredibly uncomfortable stepping into. And, and, and that risk element, right? Yes, I'm a vice president, but I've never at any point in my life 
giving up my integrity, uh, which is probably why I've moved, moved around so much uh, and had to hop from place to place. Because once you really start getting uh, high hanging fruit, you know, that's when institutions start to see that power that you have, that influence that you have, that you're able to make. Um, and it's not, it's not pretty for power. Uh, it, it's again, I'll go back to a, a quote from Bell Hooks. It's not that they don't know uh, that you have power, it's that they know you have power and they don't want you to have it. And when I think about queer, trans, and, and, and GLBT communities uh, in particular, I think that they, I want to layer this into uh, three categories. One, we really have to start having a conversation that takes out uh, trans and puts that in a place where that's a very particular subjectivity around gender and around non-binaryism and the like. And then queer in itself is a very different kind of, don't even label me at all, right? And 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 then you have kind of the more I I, I, I identify with, you know, whether that's gay or lex or bi or different identities that, that it, one is choosing to step into. And, and so I think that's an important foundation. The second is, um, from an institutional perspective, by way of, let's say, discrimination, discrimination clauses and EEO issues, if we don't report these even to HR uh, and do it confidentially, then we miss an opportunity to leave behind a track record of patterns <laughs> that we can then lean on that demonstrate a pattern of hostility and a hostile work environment uh, towards minoritized communities, towards underrepresented communities, towards trans queer uh, 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 communities. And, and, and I want to throw that one out there because that's so important for people to understand that to report even confidentiality, uh, what it does is it leaves a story that if something went down, you could look into and say, there's a pattern and we've reported it and nothing has been done, right? So it, it's a way to hold the institutional accountable. And then thirdly, into the risk. Mm -hmm. Um, it does take a risk. I, there's a level of positionality in this community. One doesn't just look at a person and say, oh, they must be gay. They must be lesbian, they, right? There's the, the idea of challenging even normativity and, and, and the consumption of the spectacle uh, is, is interesting. And, and it does take a responsibility on a person and that risk that you speak to, to be able to at least step out and challenge and contest. It doesn't mean they're gonna go all out and get in a fight like people think it. But at, at, at minimum, there is an ownership. I think that ownership and that understanding of that is so important in battling what they deem microaggressions, macroaggressions, or implicit bias. I just call it racism and homophobia. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it is. Retaliation complaints have surpassed race discrimination with 45% of all complaints, making it the most common case to be dealt with by the EEOC. So there is a trend. People are retaliating. Supervisors, managers are retaliating. There is a reason for this fear. But I also read the number of complaints are increasing. We are complaining. So does this system work? And I, and I think it's interesting that you said, you know, it doesn't work because uh, I think it doesn't work immediately sometimes. I mean, sometimes it doesn't work at all. You know, I'm not saying, yeah. I've worked for an institution where, I mean, I don't know how many more complaints people can put in, but, you know, it is what it is. So sometimes it really doesn't work. And 
change can be really slow and it needs so many different things, right? It's that combination of, sure, standing up for yourself, maybe with colleagues and students, you know, putting in complaints, but also, you know, it goes back almost to the first scenario, who are the people who can work with you on systemic change, mm-hmm. right? Is there a systemic change that needs to happen in this institution? Is there a policy that protects this person, for, for example? If there is no policy, does there need to be a policy that's created and the university petitioned to adopt this policy, right, the higher ed institution? Uh, so I, I think what I want to add also in a very bold way, because it's so important we say this, I don't think we say it enough. And I've been, uh, even in my last institution and in the horrible leadership there, the former institution I, I worked for, who actually uh, did more to appease white liberalism uh, than it did to actually contest uh, issues of uh, 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 racial and intersecting injustices is, look, people, if a place is so toxic uh, that it's really taking a bite at your spirit, mm-hmm. that it's really eating at your soul. We see why so many people leave higher ed. In some cases, they move on to another institution. I've chosen and elected to take and stay that route because I feel deeply about education and the need for us critical activists in those spaces. But other folks have decided, look, I'm at higher ed. Uh, I'm done with you, and I need to just go through my own thing in the way I believe I'm going to best serve the needs and the issues. Uh, and, and I think that's important to say because uh, some folks will stay in incredibly toxic environments. And, you know, maybe sometimes uh, it's best to just leave that institution. Thank you so much for that, Michael. Thank you so much. We needed that. Many questions from our podcast audience ask about that moment, right? there and thank you for that and then another question they ask about how do we deal with identity taxation this can apply to anybody not just professors or instructors but can apply to anywhere when dealing with these issues within academia or even outside these walls dr iron toffee please the amount of work that gets piled on minoritized faculty is just so much higher, especially because so many of us are in this because we care, right? We care deeply. And they really, a lot of institutions really exploit that care. And it does get to the point where, for me, I realized that I was contributing to legitimizing an institution that was actually perpetuating Mm -hmm. harm in my community. And that was a really hard moment to come to, right? In the system to make change and there is that moment of honesty that to have with myself where I really didn't feel the institution was ready and willing to change you know I was waiting for some leadership change that came and it wasn't really a change and then you know you realize hang on a minute I'm actually being used by the institution to perpetuate harm while I'm trying to undo this harm and this is no longer sustainable and you know, you talked about how you need to really be mobile, which is one of the things I realized that if I really wanted to be rooted in a community and as a parent, I wanted to have stability, you know, for my kid, that really restricted my opportunities, but also not being a citizen, right? I was really bound to their education institution that was hiring me and literally at meetings where I was told, why would we support a green card? That means you can leave, you know? And 
I didn't really see a problem that they were able to say that to my face. And, uh, you know, and of course, you know, eventually I actually did manage to like save and pay an immigration attorney and, and leave. But so there is an intersection of things like institutions know if they you're dependent on them because you're an immigrant or you're dependent on them because you're a parent and can move and don't have as many options. Yes. So they're not innocent, you know, yes. and, and we need to be really honest and looking at the game no, they're playing can't. and what's the cost to our soul? You know, what's the what's the cost to our spirit? They have every information about you and they really take advantage of that. Well, here's the reality. They think they own you, right? And 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 and, and to your point, um uh you know, Alex is so critical. Um I learned in my experience when I worked at Grinnell College that I will never allow an institution grounded in neocolonialism, imperialism to allow the students or to uh And to use my love and my heart for the students to serve as the shackles mm-hmm. uh, that keep me there. And having that very honest and frank conversation with students and saying, I'm sorry, I love you. I care deeply about you. But this institution uh, really doesn't care. And uh, I-, I can't let them use you as my shackles. And if it's time to go, it's time to go. But I'm not going to be enslaved. Uh, both physically, spiritually, and mentally and emotionally, all of those, uh, simply because I love you all deeply. Uh, I'll stay connected, but I, I, and you could, you're more than welcome to reach out, but I gotta go. I, it took me too long. It took me 20 years to learn how much IRAD, uh, can use your trauma against you. And I'm very open about, I think there's too much stigma about therapists never talking about their own mental health. And I live with complex PTSD. And I think actually a lot, it's impossible to live in this world as a minority and not have some form of PTSD of some kind. And uh, one of the things that it took me way too long to learn is don't let IRAD institutions, um, really get in your head about your value. I felt like a failure, you know, people who were uh who had a PhD for as long as me were full professor in other institutions and I never even got any track job in the US. And it's easy to feel like a failure and just don't let them get in your head. It took me like, you know, I've been out of IRED for five years now and it's taken me a few years and I still have low moments where I think it's me because other people have made it. And I have to remind myself, no, there were lots of factors. There were lots of factors. And I made my choice for my spirit, for my family. Just don't let them crush you. Don't let them make you believe that you're worth less than you are. As I listen to everyone's words, and let me tell you, you are giving me so much wisdom. Thank you so much. And as I listen to everyone's wisdom, one advice I would like to share is to always assess your workplace. Every year, on your own, assess yourself. Propose a 360 assessment in your department and assess it every year. And if it's great, great. Do it again next year. And if not, address it. I mean, just the thought of uh, of this stresses me out. Sounds traumatizing. Sounds like trauma on top of trauma. All right. I still have more questions for our guests today. Uh, Dr. Benitez and Dr. Antafi. Now we're off to our third question. My name is Michelle. Faculty in the department learn quickly that I am not afraid to voice my views. However, 
my chair recommended that I take a conflict resolution course as a result. Overjoyed, my colleagues say someone finally put a muscle on her. Professor WTF. This question now, this question touches many areas and it's somewhat personal to me. Civility that secretly governs the campus's workplace behaviors. In the legend of angry black women and angry black Latinas, this is a common narrative. However, especially amongst women of color, being trapped between justified anger and standard civility. Dr. Benitez, please. Wow, no, that that's a deep one. That happens so, so much. And, and you know, I would encourage people to continue to be outspoken and, you know, and yeah, play to the politics of respectability. You know, I've always said, look, I'm not going to flip out. I'm not going to curse up a storm, but I'm always going to be outspoken in my roles. That's central to my role. And I'm going to do it respectfully. And but we, we have to, we're, we're going to have to deal with the backlash that comes from uh, a lot of those statements and not deal with it as some it's OK, but deal with it from a, a place of understanding the systemic ground that we that we stand on. And uh, uh, from from a white supremacist standpoint, right? But Loretta Ross uh, said, if you don't understand white supremacy, man, you're not going to get a hell lot of a lot afterwards. Uh, you're not going to understand a lot. And I think that's that's very real. Often. Collegiality is masqueraded as conflict resolutions. And I read more and more articles, you know, that are about social justice infused with conflict resolutions. Um, is that the answer? Conflict resolutions. Uh, and and from, from the standpoint of being offered, you know, those conflict resolution courses, and, and I've been there from a place of how institutions respond, I would challenge that. Uh, I will also open it up. Uh, no different than the civil rights. We always talk about violence, violence, violence in the civil rights movement, but we don't talk about where did that violence come from? It wasn't the black or the queer people or the fighting for justice who were being violent. The violence came from the police officers. It came from institutional leaders. It came from the organizational uh, representatives of, 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 of across the spectrum. They were the ones really imposing the violence. And it's no different in higher red when you get statements like that. You're going to get them all the time. So I always encourage beyond the students that the grit should not be upon the students. We should also ask faculty and staff, one, to build some freaking grit themselves, to be able to respond to students when students challenge them. But I'm going to add then, too, is this is where cultural relevance, faculty development uh, really comes into, into play big time. This is where institutions have to understand that cultural relevance is not about whether you're doing it right or wrong. Cultural relevance is about understanding how to be responsive to incredibly difficult, sensitive topics and issues that present themselves in this type of context. I think I had too many feelings that it overwhelmed my nervous system uh, about this scenario because I've been called hostile by my seniors many times. And um and it's interesting. I left the last email I got from uh, my last boss uh, when I was working full time to remind myself while I left. Uh, and um, and uh, 
And the, the email, one phrase that, uh, you know, I remind myself as I was told, uh, I wish you could be happy so that we could change the world in a unified way. And that was the problem, that I was not unified with the view that the institution had about how to change the world, right? And one of the things that kept coming up is that um, my my clients and other co- most other colleagues or and the staff definitely did not think I was hostile. But my seniors thought I was hostile. And I think that was very much uh, a cultural mismatch for me, um, you know, not being born and brought up in the U.S., not being born and brought up in Minnesota. I was very vocal. Um, I was never willing to be quiet just because I didn't have a secure position, which is probably why I didn't have a secure position. You know, it's a circular um, uh, relationship. But, you know, what helped me uh, stay grounded is that I know this is what they use against POC faculty, against trans faculty. You're like the hostile trans person, right? The angry black person. Why are we hostile and angry? Well, because the institution is not listening. And like you, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't cussing. I wasn't being inappropriate. You know, I was only told once that was unprofessional and I was trying to get them to tell me why. And at one point I looked at them and I said, was it because I talked to somebody who's an MD and my colleague, and we were both faculty, as if they were my equal. And that was it. Because in a medical school, you just don't, even if you're faculty, if you're not a medical doctor, you know, I'm a therapist, you don't consider yourself equal. And I was like, I'm not playing that game. We're absolutely equal. First of all, we're human beings, so we're equal. I'm not to anybody um, like they're better than me. But I was just really honest and really direct. And that was considered unprofessional in a medical school environment. And it was definitely considered hostile and inappropriate not to play the game, not to be quiet when I was supposed to be quiet, even in the face of injustice. And um, and that's not being angry and being hostile. You know, it's, it's doing the job I'm supposed to do, I think, as somebody who's in higher ed. That scenario, so much a cause for complaint. That is so inappropriate. That is dehumanizing somebody, which is also a tool of white supremacy. You know, that is not okay in any way, shape, or form. Yes, you know what? Diversity and civility as concepts have always been difficult in higher education to reconcile, right? It becomes kind of a premature closure on all discussions. It derails discussions of equity, racism, justice. Um is, are these concepts that we should really, really explore? And, and yeah, it doesn't matter, brother. It, it, it really, you know, it doesn't, you know, here's the thing, you know, over the years, mm-hmm. I've obviously, you know, in order to get to where I'm at with, with my integrity intact, and, you know, you all know how you're at very well, uh, right. it's, 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 uh, it's not easy, and most people that do it, do it by eventually uh, falling into the happy Negroism and happy Brownism syndrome. Uh, and, you know, that's right. Real talk. They choose to exist and be the ones recruited to represent something they don't really stand up for in the most critical of ways. And so that there's some real talk for folks. And and so it's, it's important to understand that no matter how nice, no matter how respectful, you can even talk like this for people. But, you know, if you don't agree with what they're saying, and the moment you challenge the structure, even in the nicest of ways, uh, you're automatically going to be seen as hostile, not a team player, someone who doesn't really understand the institution and, and what they're trying to do. 
Uh, but nobody is accounting again for uh, who, who bears the brunt of the violence and whose spirits are being squashed and 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 killed, right? So that's so important to point out that people. Uh, it doesn't matter if they're nice, if it's nice anger or angry anger, or it's it's just the disagreement and challenge to power that's going to put you in a precarious predicament. Yeah, like it makes me it makes me think that for for them for um minority groups for them nice is be quiet that's how you're nice right and as soon as you say something like oh problem oh problem so that for me that's how i equate nice for me is abide by silence and you're nice and it's it's, it's for me like my side is problematic because i feel that i'm compromising my values if i don't voice any like if i don't voice inequities that i see Oh my goodness, this has been an awesome conversation. Um, before we go, I have to ask, do you have any great advice you have for our podcast hmm. audience? I, I'll, I'll start, you know, and I want to be very particularly real with people. Um, if you don't take care of yourself, you're not going to be a whole lot of good to others. Um, and, and, that's 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 so important for folks to understand again the, the piece of advice to people is just know the ground and understand the ground epistemically that you're going to step into uh especially in in, in kind of uh, not, not only majority white culture but just epistemically dominant white supremacists even if it's the white liberal supremacist type <laughs> Understand the culture you're about to get in and be intentional about how you cultivate uh, some balance uh, uh, in your life. The movement and the issues, regrettably, are always going to be there. It took 500 years to get here. It will take a thousand to undo them. So let's stay, let's stick to our part. Let's go hard when we can, but let's also step back and find uh, uh, some sense of peace where we're able to uh, because we must because we truly must absolutely I love that I think mine is uh, kind of connects to that because I was thinking about boundaries and how important they are to keep ourselves safe and to keep ourselves some some level of sanity you know and in a way when you're in IRAD as a minoritized faculty you're swimming in poison waters every day and so boundaries for me are what insulates us from those poison waters, but also being able to go back to community, you know, to go back to community and to refill our well, to go back to families that are supportive so that we're not continuously swimming in those poison waters. And just those boundaries let us also know when when it's the point to leave, maybe go to an IR, another IR institution or look for alternatives. Uh, because if we don't have boundaries, our spirit is crushed. And our movement needs our spirit more than a job in higher ed. I think that our spirit is so much more important. And so I would say have good boundaries. Don't let an higher ed institution crush your spirit. Um, there are so many other ways to serve the movement. There are so many other higher ed institutions. There are so many other ways to produce and dis- disseminate knowledge Um I don't know. I think our spirit is more important than than staying in an IRF job, uh, and especially for faculty, even in a promotion. It's just not worth it. Thank you for joining us. This was 
awesome. <laughs> this is Navigational Report 7786. Our silence, people, works to reinforce racialized, gender, disability-related inequities on campus by applying this set of race, gendered, and class set of behaviors as a standard. We have to speak out, even if it's confidential. And this will leave a nice-looking trail. And if they're calling you angry or hostile in that meeting, you are probably breaking the rules of civility, which was created with you and your group, not in mind. So you're doing the right thing. Well, thanks for joining us. On our next episode, we will have coach and scholar Dr. George Perez when we talk about code switching. See you on our next episode on The Navigationist.